a pleasure then to introduce Marcos Sotomayor. So Marcos is an associate professor in the departments of uh, chemistry and biochemistry, College of Arts and Sciences. He has won many awards. Most notably, he was, re was the recipient of a Sloan Fellowship, and these are very prestigious na national awards. I mean, I think his name appeared in the New York Times when I checked. And, um, and, uh, and actually, more to Marco's heart, he was recently awarded the uh, Distinguished uh, Undergraduate Research Mentor Award. And I think that really goes a long ways to tell you that Ma Marcos likes to teach. So then um, Marcos is originally from Chile. He got his bachelor's degree in physics at the University of Chile. Then he came to the United States to the University of Illinois where he got his PhD. And, um, and there he worked for a very remarkable man named Klaus Schulten, who is one of the pioneers of molecular dynamic simulation, something that I, he will explain briefly, I hope, because not even I understand it. And then, um, and finally he went, to, he went out east to Harvard, I believe, where he did his postdoctoral training, the, uh, learning crystallography. And finally he ended up at OSU, and we're only so lucky for it. So what the one thing before I should mention before I leave is that um, uh, try your best to keep your questions till the end, unless you have one burning question that you cannot leave the next second without hearing the answer. And, uh, but importantly, after all that, there will be a reception, as is customary, upstairs. And then you have a chance to mingle and then ask Marcos further, further, further questions, interact with him. So then let's welcome Marcos. And, um, and thank you for being here. All right, can you hear me? Is the mic working? No? no? Now? Now, yes. All right, great. So no pressure. I have to deliver a great lecture and somehow talk about RNA. I'll try to see what good I can say about RNA. That's going to be a little tough. But um, today, what I really want to do is to focus on how hearing happens. All right? Um, uh, the first thing that we're going to do, actually, is an experiment. So what will happen in the next slide is that you're going to hear a tone that is going to change in frequency. And what I want you to do is that when you don't hear it anymore, I want you to lower your hand. So we're going to start all with your hands up. Go ahead. All right. And then I'm going to start. If you hear a tone, keep it up. All right. And then once uh, you stop hearing it, you lower it. And then look around. All right, and we'll see if the experiment works or not. All right, I hope everybody, I started a little high frequency, but I hope everybody can hear it. So we're gonna start there, all right. I still hear it, yeah. Can we stop it? All right, good. Don't keep your hands up if you, uh, you, if you are still uh, hearing, right? And look around. You guys can look around. And I can tell you that likely the people that can hear, uh, <laughs> someone is cheating there, <laughs> are the young ones. You can lower your hands, right? Um, so that tells you a little bit about what happens with hearing, right? Uh, it's okay, right? So we start losing our hearing uh, from when we are 17 years old, all right? 17, right? And um, I think uh, the most important message from this exercise is that you should value your hearing, but also you should ask yourself how amazing this sense is, right? You can feel, you can sense different frequencies, you can sense different volumes, right? And some people say that actually the sense of hearing is even more important than sight. If you cannot hear, you are completely isolated from the rest of the world, right? And that is very tough, or it can be very tough, right? So the question is, how do we hear? And I want to answer that question at the molecular level. I want to go all the way to look at the molecules that actually help us hear. Now, before going into that, I need to make sure that we all have three concepts uh, very clear. And these concepts are related to what is sound, all right? What is the language 
of the brain. How does the brain process signals, all right? And then what are the components of the brain that actually make things happen? These are cells and proteins, all right? And RNA also. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly proteins, actually. Proteins are much better. All right. <laughs> anyway, so let's start with sound. And this is just a very brief uh, intro to it, right? So uh, here is a tuning fork, right? and it's emitting sound waves, and you can relate sound, or you can define it as the rhythmic compression and decompression of the air around us caused by a vibrating object, all right? So it's vibrations, and these vibrations have an amplitude. For instance, here in the tuning fork, you can see what is the motion of these uh, uh, legs here, right? And then it also has a frequency, how often this uh, uh, oscillate, right? But after all, what we have with sound is a mechanical stimulus, all right? So it's a vibration is something that is moving. Uh, so that's the main message here, right? That sound will equate to uh, a mechanical stimulus. Then the second concept that I want you to uh, remember is about how uh, the, the brain works, right? And what is the language of the brain? And here you're seeing a, a cockroach uh, leg that is connected to an electrode with electricity, all right? This is a, a somewhat similar experiment to what was done by Galvani and Volta uh, many, many years ago, in which they discovered that if they applied electricity to the leg of a frog, the leg would move, all right? And that tells you that that's what the brain uses actually to control the body, all right? Your muscles and so on. So you apply some electricity, and then you get some uh, movement of the leg, all right? But it's not only that, it's a two-way um, conversation between the muscles or your ears, right, or uh, your skin, in the sense that also to perceive things, you receive electrical impulses. So the language of the brain is really electrical signals that are transmitted back and forth, right, to control our bodies and to process information. So then the third concept that I want you to realize is that the brain and our body is all made of cells. That is the unit, the basic unit of life, and I'm showing you one here. And I think the best analogy here, and maybe we can dim a little bit the lights uh, so we have a little um, uh, better contrast. But what I'm showing you here is um, a cell with its components, and it's a very complex structure that is producing things, exporting things, importing things, actually generating waste and so on. And you can think of, it, of this as actually a factory, right, that is doing stuff uh, uh, to produce or to generate uh, some output, all right? Now, of course, uh, there, there's no unique cell. There are many different types of cells, right? So we have stem cells that usually generate other types of cells. We have bone cells, right? We have nerve cells that actually communicate these electrical imp impulses that I mentioned before. We have muscle cells, skin cells, and so on, right? But underlying the function of all these cells, always what we have are proteins and RNA but mainly proteins, <laughs> So here is what I uh, look at when I look at proteins, right? These uh, guys, blobs, right, are uh, the proteins. And if you think of the analogy that I mentioned before uh, to a factory, you can, think as, uh, you can think that the proteins are like the workers in the factory, right, that are trying to do their job, not always uh, successfully, right? But these are the proteins, the workers and the machines in the cells, right, that are trying to make things happen, right? And if something fails, like this guy, right, then you have to fix it, right, and so on, right? The cells can die also if uh, things don't work properly. So now we have learned all these three main concepts, sound as a mechanical stimulus, right, the language of the brain, which is electrical signals, and how the brain yeah, and what is the basis of the functioning brain, which are the cells, right, and the proteins that make things work in your body, all right? So now we can go and answer the question of how hearing happens. So we have a mechanical stimulus, 
which is the sound wave that goes into your ear in the outer ear and then eventually reaches the middle ear where it hits the tympanic membrane, right? And then it moves the bones of the middle ear that eventually communicate this motion, this vibration, to um, an organ that is called the cochlea, which is this snail-shaped uh, structure that I'm showing here. And that's where actually we're going to transform sound into an electrical signal that the brain can understand, all right? So what we want to learn now is how do we transform sound into an electrical signal that then your brain can process, right? So we need to put it in the language of the brain. And uh, to do so, the inner ear, which is this, and the cochlea, which is this structure here, will use cells and proteins to actually make the transformation. So that's what we're gonna look into now. And what is amazing about uh, the cochlea is that before actually doing this transformation of sound into electrical signals, it separates the sound in its different uh, frequencies. So if I go here, and look at the cochlea in more detail. Um, what we can see is that it's a snail-shaped uh, organ, right? And it turns out that high-frequency vibrations will produce vibrations here, um, high-frequency sound, sorry, will produce vibrations here on the base of the cochlea, while low-frequency sound will produce vibrations here at the apex. So what do I mean with that? Well, if I unroll the cochlea, and let me see if that works there, what we have, really, is a piano in reverse mode. And it's in reverse mode because of two things. First, we have that the low frequency sound uh, is here, actually, and the high frequency sound is here. So it's kind of inverse, right? And then the second thing that is different is that it's not producing a um, set of sounds that are mixed. It's actually separating them in different locations of the cochlea so as to uh, read signals that come from this region or from this region and so on. And that perhaps is better illustrated by this animation in which you will see low frequency sound here, high and higher frequency sound there. So when you have a complex sound from music or noise, right, what you see is how the cochlea separates this sound into its different components, right? And this is the perfect piece to illustrate what we call tonotopy. That different frequencies are located, are producing vibrations in different regions of the cochlea. All right. So that's pretty good because the cochlea is already separating and kind of analyzing uh, our signal, right? And that helps the brain process. But we still haven't answered how actually we transform into an electrical signal these vibrations. But before I go into that, let me mention that the person that discovered this uh, tonotopy and how the cochlea work was George von Beckesee, who received the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine in 1961 for his discoveries of how different frequencies of sound were stimulating different parts of the cochlea. But at the same time, he realized that the work was not done yet. Back in 1962, he said, but since we have seen how, step, step by step, the anatomical structures in the ear localize the vibration forces in a smaller and smaller compartments, it does not seem impossible that the final mechanical transformer is of molecular dimensions. That's what he said back in 1962. And since then, people have been searching for the molecules, the proteins, that actually make this happen. How do we transform these vibrations into electrical signals? So let's go back to the cochlea and let's try to see where this uh, transformation happen, and where are the molecules that mediate it? So I extended the cochlea before, and now I'm gonna take a transversal cut here, and we're gonna look at what is inside the cochlea. And what you see is that it's kind of like a tube with three different chambers that are filled with fluid through which the sound waves will travel and produce vibration. 
But right here in the middle, what we have is actually what senses vibrations. So when I was showing you before this membrane that was oscillating with different frequencies, that is this guy that projects out of the screen and inside the screen, right? But then here is where actually all the action happens. So we're gonna zoom in and we're gonna look and see that these purple guys are actually the cells that are in charge of transforming vibrations into electrical signals. So these cells have a special uh, structure here on the top that is called uh, a hair bundle. So these are called hair cells because they have this hair bundle on top. And I'm going to zoom in a little more. So then you can see um, the hair bundle, which is a structure that has these hair-like structures that we call stereocilia, right? That are um, in charge of uh, detecting vibrations. Now, a clarification here, these hairs are not like your hair, all right? It's not the hair that you have in your ear either, all right? These hairs are very, very tiny. You cannot really see them, all right? So this is a millionth of a meter, all right? So these are structures that are very, very tiny, all right? And that can display. Yes? Yeah. Let me go to the right place. Yes. So one more. Right here. I'm looking at this part, all right? And here, and here, and there. And I'm gonna go into more detail in a second, all right? So that is on top of one hair cell, we have these uh, little structures there, right? So then we look at this bundle, right? And actually we can image the hair cells and look at how the bundle looks like in this case, right? So we have several um, hair-like structures that go up and. Uh, here, right, and that are atop of this cell, which is 30 micrometers, so it's very tiny, right? Now, there are bundles of different shape and size, and we can see here a different bundle, also on the top of a hair cell that would be underneath, and you can see that this one is in V-shape, right, but it has uh, this structure in which the hairs are kind of arranged in order of increasing height, right? And here is another image of another bundle in which you also see this staircase formation of the hair-like structures that we call stereocilia, all right? All hair cells have this hair bundle. All hair cells have this staircase formation. They have different shapes, different numbers of uh, stereocilia, but all of them have this uh, um, structure, right? And what is even more interesting is that if you squeeze your eyes, you should believe me that there is something here. Right, I don't know if you can see it, but there is something very tiny there, and we're gonna zoom in and look at it, and what you see is a fine filament that we call the tip link, right? And this filament is made of proteins, and this filament is essential for hearing and for your sense of balance. If you don't have the tip link, you cannot hear, and you don't have your sense of balance, right? So all hair cells have this uh, structure, uh, this staircase formation, and all hair cells have uh, tip links, all right? So now the question is, why is this tiny filament, very fine filament, important for hearing? Why is it essential for hearing? Well, let's go back to the cochlea. Here we have another drawing of the cochlea with uh, its snail shape, uh, um, uh, location there, right? And we're gonna, again, take a transversal cut of this region and go back here to where the hair cells are. And remember that sound is coming through these uh, fluid-filled chambers and produces vi producing vibrations right there underneath this, the hair cells. And perhaps this is gonna be more clear in this illustration where you can see here the hair cells with the bundle, which are here, you cannot really see the bundles here, but you can see the hair cell bodies, right? And what I'm saying is that when sound is coming in and out of the cochlea, it's producing vibrations here. And these vibrations, actually what they do is that they lift the hair cells and they push the bundle against this uh, yellow membrane. So what we're doing is that we're transforming vibrations from sound into motion of the bundle. All right, so that's the first transformation that we're gonna do. And then when that is happening, which is what is illustrated here in an experiment with a hair bundle 
and a manipulator that is pushing the bundle back and forth, as it would happen in the cochlea, then what happens is that the tiplings that are located right here at the tip, you cannot really see them, right? But they are there, as illustrated here. The tiplings will experience a force because we're mo moving the stereocilia. The tipling gets stretched. And when it gets stretched, actually what happens is that there is a force that is applied to this filament. So this force, what it does is that it opens a transmembrane protein that is called an ion channel that allows then ions to go from outside the cell inside the cell. So that is the electrical signal that you eventually will understand the sound. We have potassium, right? These ions that are charged, so that is electricity, right? Related to electricity. And then this charge actually goes inside the cell and changes what we call the uh, membrane potential of the cell. And that triggers a signal saying, hey, I hear something there at this frequency, all right? So it took um, a lot of uh, time, actually, to understand how this worked. The first experiments in which uh, people pushed the bundle and recorded an electrical current were done by Jim Hatspit and David Corey back in the 70s. The first images uh, of the tiplings were obtained in 1983, but it took over 20 years to find what genes encode for the proteins that actually form the tiplink and this channel that is shown there, all right? Now, um, that is how we transform motion into an electrical signal, the ions go in, and that is what is happening right now in your inner ears. My voice is actually producing vibrations in the cochlea, is pulling on your tiplinks, and the tiplinks are opening and closing these ion channels that are there, and that's what is generating the electrical signals that you're understanding as sound, all right? So what we really wanted to do was to understand the structure of these proteins and how do they work. And uh, we looked at uh, the amino acid sequence of these proteins that comes from uh, their genes, and we could uh, understand from that analysis that the proteins were very long, and they had um, these uh, oval-shaped uh, uh, symbols that I use here that we call repeats. So it had some sort of repeating unit. They are not really repeats, but they are similar to each other. This protein that is called protogen 15 has 11, and carin 23 had 27. And this whole thing is what forms the tippling. Right? That's what we knew when we started with this project. We knew that the shape should be an elongated shape and that they had these modules, but we didn't know anything else about the structure of those ovals, right? So we put the cartoon there, but we really didn't know what was going on uh, there. And we also didn't know how these two proteins would connect, right? You can imagine that if the connection is not there, then I cannot convey force to the channel and therefore you cannot hear, right? So we decided that we wanted to obtain the structures of these proteins and try to look at them, all right, and at, in atomic detail. And to do so, we decided to use um, X-ray crystallography. And in a nutshell, what we had to do was, there were two things that we had to do. First, we had to amplify the signal. If you want to image something that is a billionth of a meter, all right, you cannot image one. It's gonna be very, very difficult. All right? So the way that we amplify the signal in uh, X-ray crystallography is by taking many of these proteins and forming what we call a crystal, which is a periodic arrangement of these molecules, right? all in the same orientation, in the same pose, and so on. So then we can take a picture and amplify the signal from that crystal. The other thing that we needed was to take that picture, right? and for that, you really needed a magnifying glass. right? Now, that magnifying glass is not like this one, and I'll show it to you in a second, all right? So let's go over the first part. How do we amplify the signal? So to do so, first, we need to produce the protein, and I'll show you here some gels. We focus, actually, before showing you that, I'll tell you that this is a very long protein, very large. So what we decided to do first was just to focus on the connection. How do they connect? All right, so the tips of each of the proteins that we call EC1 and EC12, which are illustrated here 
uh, with these oils, right? And then we produce those proteins, and this is a gel that is showing that we are actually able to produce a lot of this protein. And then we try to crystallize the protein. So to amplify the signal, we need to put them in crystals, right? So crystallization of proteins is not an easy task. You guys have crystallized things in the kitchen. You have actually worked with salt, right, or with sugar, right? And then you see the crystals right there. But with proteins, actually, it's very, very difficult to obtain good quality crystals. So what we do is that we try many different experiments. So this guy here is a little tray that has 96 different wells. So in one tray, we can do 96 different experiments at the same time. And actually, we don't set up one tray. We set up hundreds of trays. And you can ask the students of my group there how many each of them have. They will be later on, right? Some of them will tell you they have hundreds and still haven't found the right crystal, all right? Um, and what we do in each of these experiments is that we have a different composition of a buffer that we use to try to crystallize our protein. And here in this little uh, drop, we put our protein, hoping that it will uh, actually crystallize. And we seal this, and each, these guys, right, this is one of these uh, this, uh, wells here, right? So when we look from the top, we see here the reservoir and the drop where we hope to find a crystal. So I'll show you how the experiment looks like at the beginning. We have here a tray. This is position A1, right? And we have up to H12. And we have here the buffer and here where the protein should be and the, where the crystal should form, right? And then we look at those wells, right? And we screen them very often to see whether a crystal has formed. So this is at the beginning of an experiment and you can see that nothing is happening yet, right? And then you see some dirt, and that happens, right? And then you see precipitation. So this is game over. The protein actually came out of solution. It didn't form a crystal, right? Um, but uh, it didn't, uh, uh, it formed this kind of uh, aggregate, right? That is not really uh, helpful. And then we see something like this, which I have no idea what it is, right? So there are many buffers there, and they form different structures and whatnot. And you see weird things. Sometimes things grow in the plates, right? So that's not good, right? Not very good. And then what we see are things like this. And then you're very happy, because that looks like a crystal, right? Now, in this case, actually, this is a crystal of salt. It doesn't have any protein. So it's game over again, right? Very exciting, right? But not our protein of interest, so nope. Keep trying, right? And that's what we do until we find things like this, in which we have little tiny crystals. And in this case, these are crystals of the tip of one of the proteins that I mentioned before, KN23, right? In which the protein has aligned itself in some geometric pattern, right, that forms these crystals and that will allow us to obtain the structure. And you can optimize the conditions to obtain uh, larger crystals or smaller crystals. The color is meaningless here. It's just uh, so we can identify it. So we have a polarizer there. But uh, what we care about is uh, about the size and the quality of the diffraction of these crystals, which I will discuss a little bit uh, later on. We have also optimized to smaller crystals, which actually, in this case, diffracted better than the larger ones, right? Or to crystals that are not very helpful because they have many layer uh, crystals on top of each other. And then that makes the analysis of the diffraction pattern very difficult. We have here larger crystals and even larger crystals here, right? But when I say large, you have to take into account that this was in a little tray, right? So the size of this is less than uh, probably, uh, that is probably 50 micrometers. So 50 billionths of a meter, right? So very tiny, uh, millionth of a meter, right? So very tiny. So when, once we have these crystals, what we have to do, ah, and before showing you that, here is a movie actually illustrating the formation of some crystals. These ones form overnight, and you can see another one forming there. And here we have these guys popping up there, right? Some crystals form overnight. Some crystals take a month. Some crystals take three months to grow. Some crystals actually appear after a year. 
So you never know, we have all our trays, they're stored in our cold room, that's where we grow them, right? Always looking and hoping, maybe now we have the crystal there, right? So it takes some time, but once you have it, then what you have to do is that you have to image it, right? And to image it, you have to fish it and take it out from this well. So that's the next step in which we take a loop, a very tiny loop, you cannot see it, this has to be done under the microscope, in the cold room, all right, for several hours, and eventually you can put your uh, crystal in the loop and freeze it in, um, in liquid nitrogen. We call that cryocooling, right? So then we can protect the crystal from high temperatures and preserve it and send it to where we're going to image it. So how do we image it? Well, we don't use this magnifying glass, all right? That's not good enough. We are talking about molecules, right, of uh, angstrom nanometer dimensions. So that's 10 to the minus 9, a billionth of a meter, all right? So um, what do we do? Well, we use a microscope that is a lot better, and that is the synchrotron. So there is a synchrotron in uh, Chicago, and you can see here, this is the size of a car, right? So this whole building is used to generate X-rays that are powerful enough that will allow us to actually image these molecules, right? Now, the process is not that simple. Um, actually, some people wouldn't call this a real microscope. What we're doing is just harvesting the X-rays to be able to image the uh, crystals and obtain what we call a diffraction pattern. This is a diffraction pattern that we can use actually to obtain an electron density in which we can see individual atoms of the molecules, all right? So that's how we get a picture of our proteins of interest. Now, what I just told you in three, five seconds, maybe 10 seconds, takes years, all right? It's not uh, that simple. There are a lot of steps there. There's a lot of failure in between, all right? But eventually, you get something like this, right? And uh, with that, actually, what we were able to do was we were able to obtain the structure of the proteins, of the tips of the proteins that form the tepling. And that's what you're seeing here. This is what we call EC1 of protein 15, EC2 of protein 15, EC1 of carbon 23, and EC2 of carbon uh, 23. This is the atomistic representation of that bond this is a more abstract representation in which we can see some parts of it, like these green spheres that are calcium ions that are really important for a hearing, and this arginine that is also really important for the connection between the two proteins. And actually, I think I have here, I hope I don't destroy the connection here, but something that has been amplified a billion times so then you can see them, right? So these are these two guys, right? And then I can open and see, right, what parts of the proteins are important for the connection, right, that is essential for hearing. Without this, you cannot hear, all right? So that's what we discover with X-ray crystallography, all right? And then I'll have this later so you guys can uh, check and play with it, all right? So um, what we have, right, is this structure, and we can um, go back to what we knew about it before we started the project, which is what we have here, right? So we have the ovals that I mentioned actually have a real structure, right, where we are, now we can see all the atoms, the positions of the uh, pieces that form this protein and how they connect, and we call this the handshake of hearing, all right? Now, when you um, are a scientist and you're solving these things, right, your colleagues usually tell you, well, you're probably wrong, right? You have to prove that this is real and that is happening, right? Not only in the crystal, but also in solution or in vivo. So we did uh, many tests, and here is one test which, uh, the only thing that you need to uh, understand from this is that we can measure what is the heat upon binding of the two proteins. And if there is heat, we see these peaks. 
if there is no hit, there is no, uh, there is no pick, right? And here we see this happening in solution. So that is a validation that it doesn't happen only in the crystal, but also happens in solution, right? And then we can look at what happens um, also with some, uh, another way to validate this is to look at what happens with some mutations, changes in the proteins that actually cause deafness. So here we can see that this amino acid that is here, that is in the middle in the connection, actually causes deafness in humans when it's changed. So then we could start to explain why some people have, uh, cannot hear, right? Because we can relate that to the structure of the protein, how these uh, changes in amino acids prevent the formation of this handshake and how that actually leads to um, hearing impairment, all right? But perhaps the best validation came from a collaborator. So I don't work with animals and I will show uh, some mice here. So if someone doesn't like mice, you can look uh, away, right? Um, but these collaborators work with, uh, with these mice and they found some that were completely deaf and they, la they lack the sense of balance. And what you will see here is this guy that is mutated and you see that he's going around, right? and is deaf, this is the wild type, it's completely fine. The only difference between these two animals is one part of the protein that is changed, is mutated. There is one amino acid that is an isoleucine, that is an hydrophobic, sticky amino acid at position 108 of protein 15 that is mutated to an asparagine that is hydrophilic, that attracts water, and that actually is located right here in the handshake. So we looked at it in more detail. This is the amino acid that is changed in uh, these animals. And it turns out that when that change is made, there is no interaction between the two proteins. The handshake doesn't form anymore. If the handshake doesn't form anymore, then the mice cannot hear. And what I haven't told you is that also they don't have the sense of balance. So the same hair cells that I mentioned that are in charge of transforming sound into an electrical signal are in charge of transforming your head motions into electrical signals. So this guy was rotating because it couldn't tell where up, down, left, or right were, right? It didn't have the sense of balance. And that was because the handshake was not there. So we can also then look at the hair cells of these guys, and you can see here the control where the hair bundle in form of a V-shape is formed very well, right? But in uh, the guys that don't have the handshake, we can see that it looks like a tornado went through the field and broke all the bundles. They are not uh, well formed anymore, right? So that is uh, the relevance of the handshake for uh, the hair cells, right? And for making a transaction. You cannot transform sound or head motions into electrical signals that your brain can understand without the handshake. Now, of course, I told you a lot, uh, uh, a lot about this connection here, right? But there are plenty of more parts of the protein that we don't know, we didn't know much about, right? So when I came to Ohio State and even before, we started to work on trying to obtain the structures of the other parts of the protein to see if we could see the whole tippling, right? So I told you only about the connection, but what about the other ones? So um, various multiple grad students, undergrads, and postdocs uh, work together to try to obtain a structure of one, two, three. Then we have six, seven, eight, 12, 13, 14. And you see that we're trying to put them together to build a model of the whole thing, all right? And they are still working on it to try to see if we can get a model of the whole current 23. So then we can start to see which parts are different, which are highlighted here in orange between the different domains of the protein. Some of them have three calcium ions, as I mentioned in the first slide or in the first structure that I show. Some of them have sodium, some of them don't have calcium ions and so on. So then we can start to look at what is going on there. We can put models uh, together of longer pieces and look at the elicity of the filament and whether that has some implications for function of how you pull uh, the channel, right? And then we can look also at single missense mutations, these changes in the proteins 
that cause deafness. Each of these um, labels here represents a patient that is deaf. And that patient is deaf because one of the amino acids that makes it the protein was changed to something that renders the protein uh, uh, non-functional. All right. Now, with Canadian 23, we have done a lot of progress, but we haven't finished yet. Yet with protein 15, which is the purple one here, uh, it's a little smaller. So actually, we were able to solve uh, structures for all the pieces, and we were able to put them together. So what I'm showing you here is also the work of several grad students, undergrads, and postdocs that managed to solve one, two, two, three, three, four, five, four, five, six, seven. So then we can put them together to look at the structure of the whole thing, right? And when we do so, what we find is that we have two molecules, two protogram 15s together, and they are forming actually not one handshake, but two handshakes. So we here actually with two handshakes. One handshake might be actually too weak. So we need two connections. And we can look at the details of the connection here. And for instance, this is the arginine that I mentioned before that is mutated uh, in some uh, patients that are deaf, right? We can also look at why we have two handshakes. And that is because there's a part of the protein that likes to form an X. And that X forms what we call a dimer. And that dimer is what facilitates the uh, formation of these two uh, handshakes. And then we can look at other parts of the protein in which we don't have three calcium ions, but we have only one. And it turns out that that is important for the flexibility of the protein. This region, we think, is actually more floppy. And then we look at other parts that don't have any calcium ions, like this one, which we think is even more floppy. Right? And that has consequences for uh, how we convey force to the channel that is linked to this part here that is, uh, it has actually what we call a novel fold um, that might be important for gating of the channel that I mentioned before. So that's great. We have uh, this uh, structure, beautiful structure with the whole thing, right? But this is like taking a picture, right? A snapshot of the protein but that sometimes is not enough, right? And some of you may know that very well, right? So if you look at the newspaper and you look at a picture like this, you don't know, was it touchdown or not, right? So if you take the picture at the wrong moment, you may miss the key information, right? That will tell you whether uh, you won or you lost, right? Um, so what we do actually is that to image the motions of these proteins. We really don't have an instrument that allow us to do that. And what we do is modeling. So we use computers to actually look at the dynamics of the proteins, right, as uh, based on predictions from models. And we use the supercomputers here at Ohio State, at the Ohio Supercomputing Center. And that, that allows us to go from a static snapshot to a dynamic view of what is happening in the inner ear. So that's what I will show you in the next slide here, where you can see the handshake, and I'm applying forces in opposite directions to mimic what will happen in the inner ear. And you can see how the handshake breaks. So this is what would happen if you go to a rock concert, right? You put your inner ear, your ear right next to the speaker, right? This very loud sound. That will apply a lot of force in the bundles, right? And then some of the tiplings may break. If you only break your tiplings, you may be fine, actually. The tiplings can regenerate. But if the sound is too loud, what happens is that the whole bundle falls apart, like the ones that I show you for the mice, right? And when the bundle falls apart, the whole hair cell uh, dies, and the hair cells do not regenerate. So you have one set of hair cells for life, right? And that's it. So if you kill the hair cell, there's no uh, uh, hearing back, all right? So careful with that. And then, of course, this was just pulling the handshake. But now that we have the structure of the whole thing, we can also see how the whole thing behaves with two handshakes here, right? And this new part here that you see unraveling even before the handshakes break, right? So there are other things that are happening and that we are trying to investigate to see whether this uh, actually has implications for the gating of the channel. What is also interesting, right, is that from this, 
We can predict what forces are required to break the handshake, to break parts of the protein, and so on. But of course, this comes from simulations. And uh, these are state-of-the-art simulations, state-of-the-art models, right? But they are predictions. So since we are scientists, we have to test them. How do we test this? Well, we cannot just go and grab the ends of the proteins, right? Remember, these are very, very tiny filaments. But what we can do is that we can do some sort of uh, tagging of the protein to try to see how they respond to force. And in the lab, we have uh, built, we're not the inventors of this uh, uh, machine that we call the centrifuge force microscope, but with the help of the inventors of this machine, we have put here an arm that has here our sample in which we are gonna attach a bead to our proteins of interest and uh, um, a cover slip that goes right here. This is in front of a light source, an objective and a camera, and this is all mounted into an arm that will rotate. So the idea is that if I put here my protein 15 and KN23 handshake, right, and I can see the bead, right, then the handshake is intact. But as this is rotating, the bead will feel a force that will pull on it. And if the force is large enough, the handshake will break. And if it breaks, the bead will go away and we will see it fade away. So this will become a little more clear when you see the actual machine uh, that actually was assembled by an undergrad here at Ohio State. Um, you can see here is the source light and somewhere here is the sample. And um, we need to click play in the video. Let's see if that will work right there. So here you see it rotate. This is version zero. Version two doesn't, or version one doesn't have all the tape there, right? <laughs> and you can see how it goes very quick, right? And we have a $5,000 camera spinning around, right? Um, which always makes me a little nervous, all right? Uh, for the student, not for the price, right? <laughs> but anyway. So we managed to do this, right? And then what we observe actually is that if we have current 23 attached to the cover slip and then protein 15 attached to the bead and these two proteins forming the handshake, what we see is that we see the beads and probably I think we need another play uh, here for this guy if we can flick right there. What you will see is that the beads are moving around. They are attached to a cover slip, but focus on this one. It goes away. That's when the bond is broken, right? And then uh, we uh, can measure how much force is required to actually uh, unbind the construct. We're still working on that, um, but that is supposedly mimics what happens in vivo, right? Where you have this sound producing vibrations, applying force to the handshake, right? And uh, thereby opening uh, the channels to generate the electrical signal that you understand as sound or noise. So that is great, but all what I've told you so far is related to the tippling. But what about this guy, and let me go back once that transition was too fast and I'm going in the other direction here. Let me just go back here. But I told you everything about this filament here, right? But how about this guy? Without tiplings, you cannot hear. But if you don't have the membrane channel that opens and closes to allow ions to go through, right, then you will also not be able to hear. Now, trying to get the structure of this membrane protein has been extremely, extremely difficult. People have been trying for decades now, uh, more or less, maybe a little less. Uh, but they have tried very, very hard. So the only way, actually, that we have been able to try to understand how it works has been through computational modeling. And uh, students in the lab actually managed to get a very good model, which is what I'm showing you here, where we're going into the pore that transports the ions from outside to inside. And we have highlighted some key amino acids or parts of the protein that are essential uh, for this process. And here, in the simulations, we have used voltage to actually look at how the ions, in this case potassium in red, go through, right, eventually eliciting an electrical response that is what uh, you understand as a signal.
right? So uh, what is interesting about this channel is that it's not made only of protein. Actually, one of the walls of the channel seem to be made of lipids, and that is very different to other ion channels that you use to uh, um, actually transmit signals in your neurons, for instance. We're still trying to confirm if this is true or not, but if it is, it is very different to what uh, we have seen in other uh, ion channels. What we are also looking at is that how this, uh, the lower end of the tippling, which is this guy, connects to the membrane and how this responds to force. And I think uh, we're also going to need a play here for this movie. We're gonna apply force to this, which is the lower part of protein 15, and you will see here how we are deforming the membrane, and we think that that may play actually a role on how we get the channel open, so then the ions can go uh, inside the cell. So with that, and let me just uh, move away from this one, I want to end by showing you this, which is our two handshakes, and saying that whenever you hear something, you should remember that you have two handshakes there making that happen, right? And those are proteins, not RNA, proteins, <laughs> all right? <laughs> I'm gonna get kicked out here, but anyway. Uh, and also that um, what we do is basic research, right? Um, oftentimes people ask me, well, why do you do this, right? It's because I want to learn how it works. I don't cure people, I'm not a physician, right? Uh, but I do hope that what we do actually will help advances in medicine that eventually will help people, right, to improve their hearing and their lives. And with that, I'm gonna finish by mentioning all the people throughout the years, right, that have worked in the lab. Uh, the work that I show you is not my work, it's the work of the students and postdocs, right, uh, and undergrads that have uh, dedicated uh, their time to solve uh, these structures and run simulations and maintain the lab, the lab alive and so on, right? So here is from 2014 to 17, and then from 18 to 19, right? And here are all their names. They are working not only on the tippling, but also on other proteins that are involved on how the brain wires and also how different tissues are uh, formed and assembled and so on. And with that, um, I'm gonna end up by acknowledging also funding from various uh, agencies, right? And I will be happy to take any questions. Thank you for your attention. That was a little longer than I expected, but I think we have time for questions, right? All right. The ion channel. Yes. That, that is a good question, right? So the question is, you have something, the tippling, that is pulling on this channel, right? And when it opens, somehow positive ions are coming through. And then the question is, well, is there something that attracts these ions, right? So what I failed to mention is that the inside of the cell is very negative, and the outside of the cell is very positive. So as soon as you open a hole in the membrane, the positives want to go in, right? That is part of the answer. The other part is that the channel also has some negative charge that will attract those positive charges that are outside. But the main driver of the passage of ions, right, is the voltage difference between the inside and the outside of the cell. Mm -hmm. So did your research explain the ringing in our ears Very, very good question. So that is completely different. That is called tinnitus, right? And that happens often, right, that you hear a very high frequency sound. And for some people, actually, that is permanent and is, can be very, very damaging, right? Um, but that is related to uh, central nervous system processing, right? And there is an analogy that you can think of. It's usually, it usually happens when you lose some of your hair cells and you start to lose your high frequency hair cells first. 
as we showed uh, early on, right? And what happens is that the brain starts to create the sounds that are missing. It's also something that happens, for instance, when uh, you lose, uh, let's say, an arm, right? And the, the, the people that lose the arm, they still feel the rest of the arm. It's the same that is happening here, in some cases at least, right? That you are missing that high-frequency sound, right? And then the brain says, I'm missing something here. I'm going to create it. Yes, so it is very interesting. So the question was um, whether the staging and the shape and how the bundle is arranged, right, um, uh, plays a role in mechanosensation. And I, I don't think we understand it completely, but it's very interesting that the hair cells that are at the base of the cochlea are different in size and shape than the hair cells that are at the apex of the cochlea. So that tells you that for high frequency sound or for low frequency sound, you have different type of requirements. And that is probably related to how often they move, right, and how much energy they have to absorb. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm Let, let me answer one question at a time. So the first question is, is this double handshake really present in all the animal kingdom, right? Well, so all vertebrates have inner ear, and I believe that all vertebrates have handshakes, right? Now, we haven't proved that for all vertebrates, but uh, it's present in mouse, in humans, in chicken, in turtle, pig, what else? The handshake. I'm talking about the handshake. Anything else that we have? Fish, Fish also, right? Um, so uh, I think that that is a mechanism that is conserved, uh, right? The details may vary, right, between different species, and we're trying to study that as well. What was your second question? Yes. So the question here is what happens with, for instance, the animals that use ultrasound, right? So this is very high frequency above the, eight, the 12 kilohertz that we played here, actually above 20 kilohertz, which is what we actually can hear. They use ultrasound um, to actually detect the presence of objects, right? And uh, we, are, we have a grant to try to understand what is the difference there at the molecular level. But I have to tell you that also they have different types of cochlea. So they have a little longer cochlea that, hope, that we think allows them to hear higher frequencies, right? And it depends also on the properties of that membrane that I show that, I that was vibrating there. But we're trying to understand. We have the sequences. And some people say that there are some differences that might be meaningful, and we're trying to understand those, yes. Mm -hmm. Very good question. So the question is, if positive ions are chemi uh, keep coming in, right, then eventually you will neutralize the inside of the cell, right, and there is no signal anymore. So the channel opens intermittently, but there, is, there are also pumps in the cell membrane that keep uh, extruding uh, ions, right? So you have a whole machinery, right, that is in charge of maintaining that balance to make sure that when the next stimulus comes, your cell is prepared, right, and then still has the negative potential there. I think it depends on the volume, right? So in, on the strength of that stimulus. At the end, is how much energy you're putting in, right? And you can put it very fast at high frequency, or you can put a lot of energy, right? But in a very slow uh, time frame, right? But what I would say is that we know little about how that works. 
and we know little about progressive hearing loss that is caused by exposure to loud sound, right? So uh, there's a lot of people that work in environments that are very loud, right? In the army, for instance, right? With explosions and so on. And oftentimes you can see that they come with hearing loss in one ear, which is the one next to the gun, right? Uh, because uh, it's being stimulated uh, there. How, uh, I'm not an expert on, on how that, that happens, right? But uh, I'm pretty sure that low or high frequency, if it is high pressure, high uh, decibels, right? That is gonna be bad for the head cells. Mm -hmm. We have time for one more question. There is a reception, I remind you, that you guys All right, one, the last one. Can you put it in a symmetrical form? Yeah, so the question is, can we put this into some sort of mathematical formula, right, that tell us what is the range that we can hear or when it will break, right, because we have energy equals frequency, volume, maybe length, and so on, right, and so on. Um, I think biology is very messy. I, I don't think it works just like that. You have to take into account all these different things that make you, 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 right, a different person. And there are so many details there that matter. I think a general formula may work for a given threshold, right, but the details actually matter. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you.